Uh, welcome to the Reformation Podcast. I'm Gerhard Steuben. I'm Jake Robbie. We're here to talk to you about Martin Luther. This is the final in our three episodes on Luther, and today we're talking about Martin Luther's mature theology. But before that, what's up, Jake? What's up with your life? Oh, uh, not much. Uh, summer's in here and getting ready to start another uh, year at Truett Seminary, so that's always good. Uh, been working on some research and writing projects this summer, so got something on a uh, longer form project on Baptists and technology in the 20th century that I'm excited about. I've uh, been doing a lot of research in ecclesiology for other projects. Uh, yeah, what about you? Um, I start my first PhD seminars this next week. Um, so I've been reading a lot for that. We had a thousand pages of reading for our first day. Nice. Which I'm not going to do all of. Nice. Yeah, and they they said don't do all of them, yeah, which is kind of cool. But I'm taking a class on the English Reformation, so I've been reading a lot about the boys over in Westminster, and then Calvin, obviously, because Calvin's the best. Yeah, yeah, it's fair. Yeah. Yep. So that was loud. Uh, so Luther. Luther. Uh, mature writing, so I guess we're thinking they're like fifteen eh, twenty-ish onwards, sort of like once the Reformation's really in full swing. Is that fair to say? Oh yeah, I think all of the three, the two sort of three texts that we like went back and reviewed for this episode and just reread. Uh, Jake took one, I took one. There's one that I just kind of glanced at, and they're all from fifteen twenty, aren't they? I think so. Uh. Babylonian captivity may have been a couple years later, but it was right around the same time. It's interesting trying to talk, too, about Luther's theology in general, because Luther wrote so much. I mean, what is it, like 90 volumes in the uh, the big set that usually gets passed around today? It's massive. Uh, and it's not always... 1520. Oh, it is 1520, okay. Luther's theology is rarely, if ever, anything we might call systematic... Uh, and it's really often not consistent, uh, so should definitely take the time to read Luther, but always know that Luther's theology is a uh, pretty difficult area to talk about because it's so mixed and broad and inconsistent, uh, to avoid being too pejorative with that word. Yeah, but he does have some, <clears throat> some like, major themes that come across, and he has, like, you can find his heart, even though he he's not a systematician like Calvin is. Calvin builds a structure of theology um, that's basically airtight, kind of like an Aquinas or an Origen. Um, Luther, Luther is more like I think reactionary is the yeah a term that Bart used once contrasting Luther and Calvin that was helpful for me. That um, Luther is the reactionary theologian that Calvin builds on systematically. Yeah. He's the he's the thunderbolt. Right. No, the theologian of crisis is what he called Luther. Nice. I thought that was a helpful title. If you're not aware, Jake likes Bart a little bit. Yeah. When I said ecclesiology, I really meant Bart. <laughs> uh, cool. Uh, do you want to start it? Do you want me to start it? I'm down for whatever. Uh, why don't you go? Cool. So... In, uh, 
in reviewing for this episode of the podcast, I went back and reread through um, Luther's book called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. Um, and this is, like we said, one of Luther's earliest mature writings, uh, 1520. This is only three years after he wrote and posted the um, 95 Theses, and just two years after he uh, published his like explanation and defense of the Theses. Um, and I think in the Theses episode, we read a quote from the Babylonian Captivity of the Church, in which he said, I really wish they would just burn everything I ever wrote. Uh, about indulgences and whatnot because I don't believe that anymore and it was all kind of not quite thought out enough. Um, that's from the book I read. Uh, so in so today we're talking about like what are the main themes of Luther's mature thought and in the Babylonian captivity of the church we get one very specific but important area of Luther's thought and that's specifically his thoughts on the church. Um, his ecclesiology and his uh, theology of the sacraments um, and for a medieval Christian theologian that is probably the most important topic of all and Luther um, takes that and he he takes that perspective pretty strongly and he um, lifts up the two sacraments that he thinks are truly sacraments the mass and baptism and then he talks about the other five sacraments of the Catholic Church of his time, and still today, like ordination, extreme unction, um, marriage, things like that, and he tries to explain why those are not actually sacraments. But I'm not going to walk you through all seven. I'm just going to give you the, the basics, the quick version, and that is that for Luther, uh, a sacrament is a thing composed of two parts. On the one hand, you've got the promise of God, specifically the promise of Jesus, um, and the recipient's response in faith to that promise. And those two things comprise a sacrament, because uh, a promise without corresponding faith is useless. It doesn't do anyone any good. Um, but faith without a promise of God is uh, equally uh, not useful because it's faith founded on nothing. It's faith in faith, which Luther, unlike modern postmodernity, doesn't think is very useful. Um, so for Luther, the two sacraments are um, the mass because Jesus said, take and eat, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, it's, as Paul says, for the forgiveness of sins. Um, and so the promise offered in the Mass, or what we today call the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, or Communion, is that our sins are forgiven because of Jesus' sacrifice. And the symbol of that is the bread and the wine. Um, the in order for that forgiveness of sins to be effective, we have to join it with faith. And we have to truly believe when we take the bread and the wine that our sins are forgiven and if our faith is joined to that promise then uh, the sacrament is truly effective and we truly have the forgiveness of sins now luther points out that you don't get forgiven for your sins each time you take the mass that's not what he's saying what he's saying is that uh, the sign of forgiveness uh, 
reminds us of the forgiveness that we already have and the true sacrament the promise joined to the faith um, is confirmed by our physical action and he says the same thing about baptism uh, baptism physically is being washed with water in the name of jesus spiritually baptism is uh, dying to your old life and living to the life of christ and that puts a um, not a not a metaphysical seal on you but it does in some sense seal you as a christian um, and so in luther's mind this is children this is babies uh, when you were baptized as a baby you were sealed with the sign of christ and every time you remember that being accepted by christ by being joined to the church through baptism uh, every time you put faith in that sacrament as you grow up and as you become an adult uh, you confirm the acceptance into christ's community that baptism offers and that in essence is luther's sacramental theology and his ecclesiology because the church is nothing but the place that the sacraments happen and where the word of god is preached and so that spawns all sorts of other things in luther's theology but i'm not the only one who read for this jake read for this too what's what's the other what did you read so i read another uh important work that luther wrote in that same year 1520 and it's called To the Christian Nobility of the German Nation Concerning the Reform of the Christian Estate, uh, or more often to the Christian Nobility or to the German Nation. Um, and this is a book, as well, um, uh, writing essentially on Luther's political theology. Uh, so <clears throat> in this work, Luther is working out how exactly this reformation of the church is going to take place and what the engine of the reformation will be. Uh, because according to Luther... Uh, the, the Romanists, as uh, the first sentence, the Romanists have cleverly built three walls around themselves to keep them from being uh, corrected or having their errors shown to them. And so Luther wants to take these three walls of errors, he calls them the, uh, what is it, the walls of straw and paper, and uh, blast them down as the walls of Jericho. <laughs> I just really like the first couple pages of this. It's so dramatic. Uh, but... Luther's basic argument here is that God has ordained the church and the state to be mutually supporting and that the state has the right and the responsibility to correct the church. And so Luther wants to address what he sees as three theological errors that the Roman church is making that are preventing the state from being able to correct it. So the first uh, wall he blasts down uh, is the idea that... Um, Probably the most important in this uh, work is the idea that the uh, the Pope and the bishops and priests exist in a separate spiritual class from the laity. So in classical and contemporary Roman Catholicism, uh, there is an actual ontological metaphysical difference between um, the, the laity, just the people that commoners that attend the church, and the clergy, the ministers, the, the priests, the bishops, the cardinals, the Pope. Um, and when I say ontological and metaphysical, that's big words to say that they are actually somehow... Modern Catholicism would not use the phrase better than, but set apart from everybody else. So when you are ordained as a priest or as a bishop or the pope, <clears throat> you are... You now have a relationship to God that is different than a person who has not been ordained. 
uh, and Luther goes after this um, the longest of any particular point in this essay, and this is where we get the idea of the priesthood of all believers, because that's Luther's answer. That there's not a separate spiritual class of priests. Everybody is uh, a priest, and he's going to pull out verses from uh, from Revelation, from First Peter. He's making this argument through Scripture first, um, but he's going to make the argument that there are not separate ontological casts of Christians. And this is a really radical idea for his time. Um, that <clears throat> priests and bishops are no different than clergy. It is only in sort of representation that they are they are different. So they might represent the people in the Eucharist um, or in ordination services, but they're not different than or better than the people. Um, so he says, uh, there is no true basic difference between laymen and priests, princes and bishops, between religious and secular, except for the sake of office and work, but not for the sake of status. So sure, your priests and your bishops do different things than you do, but that doesn't make them different than you ontologically. They're different in role, but not in status. Um, so, having made this argument, um, Luther goes on to what he says is the second part, uh, the, the sort of second wall they've built up. So, if it is not true that popes, bishops, priests are just set aside to have a unique special role in Christ that can't be challenged, uh, then he also rejects the idea that the Pope alone is the one who is able to interpret Scripture. So Luther says this is just basically a defense put up to keep people from being able to correct the Pope in what he might say, that the Pope has an authoritative interpretation of Scripture. Uh, he spends a lot less time here. Uh, it seems to Luther, I think, maybe self-evident that this is the case, that if the Pope is not ontologically superior to a farmer then the Pope has no more right to the authoritative interp interpretation of Scripture than the farmer does. Uh, he has this quote in this section I really like where he says that, uh, yeah, <clears throat> when he's making this claim, uh, Balaam's ass was wiser than the prophet himself. If God then spoke by an ass against a prophet, why should not he even now be able to speak by a righteous man against the Pope? Going back to uh, the book of Numbers and the story of uh, the, the uh prophet sorcerer Balaam being corrected when uh, God spoke through his donkey he was traveling on. Um, yeah, who would help Christendom when the Pope erred if we did not have somebody we could trust more than him, somebody who had scripture on his side? So for Luther, scripture is a sort of authoritative measuring device that even the Pope is subject to. It's what allows the sort of spiritual equality. Uh, and then Luther says the third wall falls on itself when the first two are down, which is the idea for Luther that uh, only the Pope can call a special council. Um, so think about the classic sort of councils in Christianity, like the Council of Nicaea, where churches get together to decide um, some issues related to the Trinity, or uh, Chalcedon, where they get together to decide issues of Christology. According to Luther, this type of similar council is necessary now, um, but can't be called under the current Roman system because the Pope has said that only he can call a council, and the Pope's not going to call a council to talk about why the Pope is wrong. Uh, and here I think Luther gets maybe, if not as theologically significant as the first point where he talks about all believers as priests, maybe as blatantly offensive as his essay will get to the people that he's talking to. Um, so he has a sentence where I think his of any passage that Luther could have used uh, to defend this point that anybody can 
call a church council. Um, <laughs> I think this is the one that would get under the Pope's skin the most. So he says, when the Pope acts contrary to the scriptures, it is our duty to stand by the scriptures, to approve him, the Pope, and to constrain him according to the word of Christ, Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him between you and him alone. And if he doesn't listen to you, then take one or two others with you. And if he doesn't listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he doesn't listen to the church, consider him a heathen. Uh, I love that Luther's defense of this idea that um, all Christians sort of have an equal right to request counsel uh, is done by a verse that starts off, if your brother sins against you, is how he checks the Pope. Yeah. Uh, So then he points out again... um, even if we say, which he's going to argue with, that Peter is a sort of first pope figure, Peter's not the one that calls the council in Acts 15. It's all the churches together. Um, he says that it's sort of the collective duty of Christians to call councils in times of sort of theological distress uh, and to, to sort of pivot to the point where he's really specifically speaking to the German ruling class. Um, the state is in the best spot to call a council. Um, so this is where he's going to sort of pivot and suggest to the German rulers that they convene a sort of council in the spirit of Nicaea or Chalcedon uh, to enact a series of points he's going to give. I think, uh, I think it's 25, yeah. He gives 25 suggestions for uh, what he thinks the German nobility should get together to do as a result. Uh, and I won't read them all, but they're... Uh, repeated points throughout here so a big one is essentially to stop financially supporting rome uh and he goes after a variety of different types of uh church taxes or sort of kickback gifts for ordinations uh several different places and several different ways he suggests to stop giving money to rome which was a big point of contention for german christians that they were had very financially heavy burdens put on them by rome to support the sort of papal establishment uh, he calls on changes to the way that ordinations happen. So instead of your priests and bishops being ordained by an agent of the Pope, uh, someone working under his authority, that it's just ex- any existing priest or bishop in the area to get together and confirm uh, new priests and bishops. Uh, so this decentralization of power, it's a very sort of democratic ideal. Uh, he calls for an outright abolition of pilgrimages to Rome, uh, except for, I think, matters of curiosity is what he calls it. <laughs> is uh, it tourism? Basically, yeah. Uh, and you have to have a letter from your priest to do it. <laughs> I just... That one's kind of the funniest to me. <laughs> you can go if you want to, like, gawk at it, but only if your priest says you're spiritually <laughs> mature enough to... To handle the brothel of Rome. Right, As right. he calls it. I'm not calling it that. Yeah. Well, uh, in the Middle Ages, it kind of... It was rough. And on top of that, he wants to uh, also abolish these smaller sort of pilgrimage sites that are established all across Germany. So you've got these local spots where oh, we've got an apostle buried here, this is the spot where Mary appeared once, and he's calling for an abolition of these places that are essentially becoming uh, these sort of religious tourist spots. Uh, He even puts in like some big economic suggestions. Uh, This is Suggestion 21, uh, but really struck me the first time I read it until I started to think more about Luther's economic vision, but uh, one of the greatest necessities is the abolition of all begging throughout Christendom. Nobody ought to go begging among Christians. So for his thought, the state, one of the things that God has given the state to do is to make sure that all people have a type of uh, like living sustenance or a, a living wage, to use sort of modern, more capitalistic terms. 
uh, that he thought this was one of the spiritual matters the state needed to attend to. Uh, so he gives these 25 suggestions that are essentially calling for Germany to openly rebel against the Pope or to, to point to the Pope as having no more authority than any sort of ordinary Christian person and for that reason cut off the sort of economic support for Rome, this military support for Rome, this political alliance with Rome in ways that really favor the German people. So sort of keep German money and interests within Germany. Uh, and tear down these systems that are causing us to uh, support Rome in ways that are unscriptural. Uh, so I think that's my basic overview of uh, to the German nobility. I think it's important because it's Luther. Luther's conception that the not only can the church check the state, but the state can check the church is really radical in medieval times already. Um, and it'll have big implications later down the road, especially in modern theology and in 20th century Germany, the way this gets used. Um, but I think this is one of Luther's most radical ideas, is that the church, the state has authority over the church in certain areas, in the same way the church has authority over the state in certain areas. It's often called the the two spheres, or the two swords. So, uh, Gerhard, you have the third piece? Uh, before we go on to that, um, I thought it might be useful for people listening, um, when Luther uses words like Germany, um, the Germany that we know today is actually much smaller than the Germany of his era. Um, I don't know how how much you know about like Roman history. Not Jake, you you podcast listener, you may be a Roman historian and know all this. Other people are just ordinary lay folk, and they may not know this. Uh, Rome. In the mid-first millennium split into basically two halves It was one of the biggest empires ever And then it split into two halves And it was still two of the biggest empires ever Um, And basically everything in Eastern Europe And the Middle East and things like that uh, Greece, that area Split into what eventually became Byzantium um, Which is like the Greek uh, Roman empire the west went through some you know disillusions and reformations and disillusions and reformations but it eventually re-emerged uh in the middle ages as the holy roman empire you probably recognize that name uh this is a massive it's basically europe um the holy roman empire the full name of the holy roman empire is the holy roman empire of the german people um And so when Luther's talking about Germany uh, and the German princes, he's saying the rulers of this Holy Roman Empire. Um, And so when he says the state is in a good position to convene a council, he's very, very directly thinking back to when Constantine participated in calling the Council of Nicaea because the German ruler at the time who was... Was it Maximilian? Yeah. Who was Maximilian was very much in a position to do what Constantine had done. And the early reformers, especially the German ones, obviously, um, France was separate by this time and was another major power. Uh, But the German ones were really hoping for the princes and the emperor to join the Reformation so that they could reform uh, the morals and religion of the state. That's a little background um, that might help. 
Thanks, that's helpful. I think the relationship between the... It's a little bit uh, historically anachronistic to call it the Roman Catholic Church. Um, but the relationship between the Catholic Church and the state, or what Luther will call Germany, or the German state, is complicated and definitely needs more consideration. It's not as if the Pope is sort of the, the king of the Holy Roman Empire that the others are all subservient to, but he is seen to have special power and authority that the the princes sort of dare not go up against. And that's why for Luther, I think it's so important to show them that the Pope doesn't have unique spiritual status, that yeah. if they bring the ire of the Pope on themselves, they're not risking, you know, the hellfire. Unlike England, who kind of did their own thing, and like, sure, the, the Catholic Church is great. You can come in on my terms. Uh, the Holy Roman Empire... The Holy Roman Emperor was always um, always went down to Rome to be crowned by the Pope, which was a really symbolic act, which, as Jake said, uh, just makes Luther's uh, document all the more provocative. There's a so in a Roland Bayton's book that we've talked about a couple of times here. I stand this famous biography of Luther when he talks about this particular work in Luther's life in 1520. Uh, he shares a picture uh, that I wish you guys could see. Maybe we can make it a thumbnail or something, I don't know. Of uh, It's a woodcutting that I think started off in uh, the sort of principality of Bohemia and uh, soon got popular and made its way around Reformation Germany also. But it's this woodblock cutting of uh, two images side by side. On the left, you have Christ kneeling and washing the apostles' feet. And on the right, you have the Pope sitting on a throne and all the bishops are gathering around kissing his feet uh, so I think the image that was meant to convey is pretty clear sweet so uh, the last one is of the 1520 important documents is the freedom of the Christian man um, maybe we can do this one more as a conversation if you're cool with that yeah it works for me so the freedom of a Christian man um, he the thesis of it he gives you right away and what he says is um, actually I'm just going to quote it it's easy but he just says it so well because he's such a such an eloquent writer like when you write with the volume that Luther does you're going to end up being eloquent just by <laughs> finite combination of words in the language you're writing in <laughs> yeah how much did he like how many volumes did he write I think and maybe I'm, I'm wrong but I had to work with these volumes back in May I want to say it's a 90 volume set uh, in the, the to the best of my knowledge the only physical printing of the complete works of Luther I think 90 volumes I could be off maybe just seems like more because I had to go through a bunch of them yeah. Okay, so got the quote. He says, uh, A Christian is a perfectly free lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. And what he means by that is to say that a Christian is spiritually free um, from all oppressive powers, and we all know who he's talking about there. Um, and is also in a, like freely accepted by God and um, is not bound by the law, which we'll talk about law and gospel in a little bit, because I think that's super important. Everybody thinks that's super important. That's not me. Um, but a Christian is also 
bound in her or his freedom uh, to love. And so a Christian is free in the sense that they are not under spiritual compulsion. They don't have to have popes telling them this is how you interpret scripture. They don't have to have even the Old Testament law saying this is how you be moral. You're free. <laughs> Once you're uh, forgiven and regenerated, you are free to do what you truly want to do. Um, but you are a dutiful servant of all because what you truly want to do is to love and to serve and to give. And so basic thesis of this, this is Luther's developing, uh, well, by now, very developed theology of justification and good works, um, in that you're absolutely free and you don't earn your standing with God or with the church by good actions. You are accepted on your own, um, but that acceptance produces gratitude, um, and that gratitude makes you want to serve and to give and to love. Um, so a way of thinking through, I think, relationship between faith and works in a way that works still really matter, but is a, a sort of second order. They are not a thing that produces salvation for you, but they are a necessary result of it. Sort of salvation evident rather than salvation bringing. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good explanation of that. Yeah, and pretty. I think it's a helpful segue into what you've mentioned a couple of times of Luther's idea of law and gospel as this kind of repeated theme in his work, so you maybe want to say more about that? Sure. Um, so, law and gospel. Um, for Luther, there is a double action of God in the world at all times and in all places. Um, there is God's activity of giving law, and there is God's activity of bringing gospel. And humans... Um, are sinful, we are immoral, we are disobedient to God. Uh, Luther follows Augustine and, you know, the Bible in saying that humans, um, by their nature, are not upstanding good beings. We are beings who are selfish and cruel and immoral. Um, and so we, in a sense, are living in sin, um, so God has to come and kill us. That's the first swoop of God's activity is to bring law. Um, and as Paul says, um, I lived before the law, but when the law came, uh, sin sprang to life and I died. Um, that's Romans 6. Uh, so the law is God coming and telling you, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal. And then when we all say, but I haven't done those things, uh, God comes back and says, oh yeah, well thou shalt not be angry, thou shalt not have lust, thou shalt not envy. How about that? And then we have to say, damn it, got me this time. Uh, and then, so in that sense, we are killed by God's first type of activity, which is law which is telling us that we have uh, broken God's commands, that we are not actually good, and that, in a sense, puts us to death because we can no longer consider ourselves living and right before God. We can no longer say, we can no longer believe that we will be accepted by God. 
that's just a preparatory activity. Uh, the second activity of God is gospel. That's when God says, even though you're dead uh, because of the law, I will make you alive uh, out of just free grace and forgiveness. And so God just comes and forgives, um, just says, yes, you've broken the law. Um, the law is gone. You're no longer bound by the law. I forgive you for that. And Luther's the one who develops in pretty pretty much the modern formulation of like the double imputation of Christ's righteousness. Calvin is going to be the one, as always, who makes that into just like a pristine sort of doctrine. Uh, but Luther has this idea already that uh, Christ comes and he takes on the death brought by the law. Um, and because of his own perfect law keeping merits um, being proclaimed righteous by the law and then gives that to us. That's the underworkings of the law and gospel as it plays out in our lives. Uh, but from our perspective, all that we see is the command of God killing us and then the free gift of God's forgiveness giving us life. And that for Luther is it's the schema of theology. Like, if the Reformed tradition, I think Presbyterians or Calvinists today, think in terms of the covenants, like the covenant with Adam, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with Jesus, if that's like the broad schema, or maybe Southern Southerners and Baptists tend to think in terms of dispensationalism, like uh, God acted one way, from creation to fall. God acted another way from fall to flood. Um, that's another schema of theology. Uh, Luther's is distinct from all of them, and what becomes the Lutheran tradition is distinct from all of them in saying God acts the same way at all times and in all places, and it all boils down to these two activities of God, the killing and making alive, the theology of the cross leading to the theology of glory. Yeah, that's helpful, and I think uh, another point that hits that that's a big theme in Luther's theology is um, something that'll get picked up in modern theological framework is the concept of a dialectic theology, uh, which is to say that Luther has a really different method of thinking through the, uh, the sort of things related to God we call theology than people before him. Luther's coming in, I think, heavy opposition in this to the former sort of theological method that was predominant, which would be uh, called scholasticism, uh, which was this idea that sort of um, a little bit like what we associate with maybe modern fundamentalism in the old Princeton school, that um, scripture and church tradition could be systematized in such a way as to prove sufficient to any particular question. So the role of theology is to pose questions and then to use these established structures of scripture and church teaching to um, answer any questions. Uh, when I think of scholasticism, I always think of uh, um, Erasmus, who we've talked about a little bit here, and I'll talk about more another time, uh, has this work called In Praise of Folly, where he criticizes this, and he... I'm going to read a sentence from Erasmus. It's his criticism of this style of theology, uh, but know that the debate described here, according to Erasmus, is a real one that he encountered in the halls of a, a medieval <laughs> university. Uh... Yeah, so he says, um, he's asking, he's talking about these conversations he's hearing, and one of the conversations is, um, 
Whether God could have taken on the nature of a woman, of the devil, of an ass, of a cucumber, of a piece of flint, and if then Christ came as a cucumber, uh, how would he have preached, performed miracles, and been nailed to the cross? Uh, so, <laughs> this is snarky, but it's sort of a capturing of the scholastic method that Luther is reacting against, that we can pose questions to um, about God and sort of systematize answers to them. So if we know the scriptures well enough, we can find the right answer to how a cucumber might have been hung up on the cross. Um, <laughs> but for Luther, that's not what theology is. Um, it's not posing questions and systematizing doctrine to get to them. It is observing the work of God from a limited human vantage point um, and trying to describe that work in human language. Um, so things like law and gospel are, um, and Gerhard, please correct me, this might be my, my Bardian reading of Luther, but are sort of two ways of describing a single event, which is God is working in the world, God is enacting this salvation history, um, and the best way that we can describe it is sort of a, a simultaneous yes and no. Uh, we have to do a sort of both and approach. Uh, Luther's got this idea that humans are a seemingly useless at peccator. We are uh, simultaneously justified and sinners. Uh, for Luther, Christian theology is essentially meditation on these paradoxes of faith, and we don't get theological answers by sort of formulating the right formulating any number of questions and then systematizing doctrine to get to them. We observe the work of Christ as it's laid out in the Word of God, Holy Scripture, um, and, and meditate sort of less on what philosophically God could or must do and more on historically what did God do. That's a really, really interesting like way to juxtapose Luther to scholasticism. Hadn't thought about it in quite those terms, so that's really interesting. Thanks. I, uh, I am a fan of the dialectic school, so... <laughs> So if uh, the scholastics are, uh, the superstructure can take any questions you throw at it, and Luther's law and gospel method is uh, describing the activity of God, um, especially when it seems paradoxical because God is the unknowable, um, then I'm just going to have to throw some Calvin in here. Uh, Calvin is the, systema the systemata systematization of the revelation of God most evidently in scripture um, and so Calvin might do you think it's fair to say Calvin's like a mediating figure between like a Luther and a scholastic because I think so Calvin's definitely a systematizer but he has no patience for scholastics because he thinks that you shouldn't even ask questions that are in themselves prompted by scripture by revelation right as um, one of my professors would describe um in an interaction that Karl Barth would have with Emil Bruner later on. Um, we don't know the right questions to ask until Scripture gives them to us. Hmm. Uh, seems to me to be the issue there. That um, I don't think there can be a such thing as a Lutheran systematic theology because you're dealing with revelation in terms of like stark event. Hmm. Uh, Calvin, I think, does see revelation as event, not necessarily a, a set of propositions that fell down bound from heaven. Uh, but for him, I think the the event of God is it can be reflected on systematically. We can sort of order it in a in a very light sense. There's, I don't remember any. There's not like a 
Lutheran scholastic school in the way that there is a Reformed scholastic school later on, is there? There is. Uh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is what uh, so is it Philip Jacob Schweiner, uh, the one that does Pia Desideria? Yeah. He wrote that book in response to Lutheran scholasticism. Huh. Uh, the long story short, this is not an area I'm an expert in, but the Lutheran scholastics were essentially a group of people in um, the late seventeenth early 16th, or late 17th, early 18th century, that more or less tried to systematize Luther's writing as canon for the Lutheran Church. Huh. Uh, so they acted very much like the sort of high medieval Catholic scholastics, uh, but the the thing they systematized wasn't canon law, it was the writings of Martin Luther. That's really interesting. Yeah. Boy, that sounds like a task that I, I would not <laughs> be trying to take Luther's 90 volumes of writings and... I mean, like, Doing Aquinas is hard enough. So, like, Thomas Aquinas is going to be your typical example of, like, a Catholic scholastic. He's the guy who starts it all. Uh, at least Aquinas is systematic. They both wrote a lot, but man. Yeah, Luther, stories jump out to me. There's the, was it Babylonian Captivity the Church that he said later that he began writing when his flagon was full and stopped when it was empty? <laughs> was it that one? Oh, uh, uh... I think so. But uh, Babylonian Captivity, if I'm not mistaken, also, it's been a little bit since I've closely read it, but I think he starts off that, and you, tell me if I'm wrong, I think he starts off that one by saying there are three sacraments, uh, baptism, uh, communion, and marriage, and then about halfway through the work kind of decides marriage doesn't really work now that he's really thought about it, and it, I, it drops out. I think it's penitence. Um, oh, yeah. No, you're right. It is penitence. Not yeah, he yeah. goes back and forth on the number. Sometimes he says there's only one sacrament, which is faith and and word. And and he'll do this in the same work. Like Yeah. <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah. I mean, I'm a Bard scholar. I can't complain about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, next topic. Um, I talked a lot this last one. You want to hit this one? Sure, would that be uh, Scripture's authority or whatever you want? Specifically, that's probably another point that's been around what we've said is um, Luther's rejection of canon law is inherently authoritative, which is a big thing uh, for a good, I think, high medieval Catholic, like much earlier on, Thomas Aquinas. the laws that the church has developed and have come around sort of through the interpretation of popes and bishops and councils have the same authority as scripture. I think if we're being charitable by virtue of their being scriptural, but um, because they have this same authority, we can appeal to church tradition or specifically canon law. Church tradition is too broad. Canon law, much like we can, um, much like we can uh, scripture itself. Uh, that has equal authority, and that's for a for really Christological reason. In Roman Catholic theology, uh, less today after Vatican II, but still to a significant degree, um, the Pope is Christ for the Church. Um, that's strong for today, but pretty fair for medieval Catholicism, I think, um, that Christ gave his authority to Peter, Peter gives it to his successor, and so on down to the contemporary Pope. Um, So, because the Pope is Christ for the Church, because the Pope is filling the role that Christ filled for his apostles um, for the Church now, um, he and the, the sort of council around him can speak authoritatively. Their speech is a type of revelation. 
uh, it is like the words of Christ because they are Christ for the church. Um, as Luther deconstructs the idea of the papacy being the sort of in persona Christi, I am Christ for the church, that destabilizes canon law. Um, the things the Pope and the Council say are no longer authoritative by virtue of their being said by Christ for the church, the Pope. Um, they're, um, they're authoritative by virtue of their reflecting or not reflecting um, God's only revelation of Scripture. Uh, and that's a little simplistic, we should say, only revelation, Christ, you know, witnessed in Scripture. Uh, but for Luther, for fundamentally Christological reasons, um, we find sort of information about God through Scripture alone. Um, so the idea of sola scriptura isn't just a sheer epistemological statement, it's really a Christological statement that the the authority of Christ is unique and not transferable to other groups. And the authority of Christ for the church, living after Christ, is Holy Scripture. On Scripture, let's just... Let's just complicate a modern narrative. Uh, it is pretty common today to... Um, when we're talking about inerrancy... Uh, inerrancy mostly to cite Luther as like an anti-inerrancy figure because his like reaction to James and the use of the book of James in uh, the theology of his day um, I don't think that that I don't I don't believe in inerrancy or infallibility or anything like that um, I believe scriptures and authoritative you can read my book on that you can even get it for free. Hey, we haven't done a oh yeah a plug. Uh, let's just make that part of the plug. You can download my book on scripture, Scripture Revisited, um, at patristicapress.com for free. Or if you're just feeling generous, you can buy it and we'll print you a copy and ship it to you. Um, but there are a bunch of our books for free that you should go download. Jake and I wrote a book on there. Yeah. It's not about scripture. You'll have to, like, Twitter DM me for my thoughts, I guess. <laughs> and an article or two floating around the interwebs, so... Yeah. Uh, any other press stuff you want to... Uh, lot TBA right now, as always, yeah. so... There was a, there's a lot more coming. Scripture. Luther. Um, Luther is often used by progressives to push back against uh, the conservative fundamentalist, however you want to phrase it, inerrancy doctrine of scripture. Um... Luther actually believed something like inerrancy or infallibility, actually. Um, he, at one point in my reading, I can actually find this real quick. Luther, um, at one point, is arguing with um, theologians of his day. In the book that I reread for this, uh, The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, and he's arguing against people who say that he's talking about the Eucharist, the Mass, um, and people who say that uh, Paul's instructions for the Mass um, given to the Corinthian church were only applicable in that church at that time and are not binding in all places at all times. Um, basically, it has to do with whether you give the people the bread and the wine or you just give them the bread won't bore you with all that argument. 
Um, but what he says on the, the nature of scripture there is actually really interesting when we put Luther, when we compare what Luther actually says to the narrative being told about him today. Uh, he says, this is a quote, If we admit that any epistle of Paul's or any single passage to them does not pertain to the church universal, all Paul's authority is nullified. On that basis, the Corinthians might aver that what Paul had taught the Romans about faith did not apply to them. Could anything more blasphemous be imagined? Away with the idea that there is a single syllable in the whole of Paul which the whole church is not obliged to follow and obey. That was not the view of the fathers up to the perilous present. Um, that sounds to me a lot, at, if not inerrancy, like infallibility. Um, and by Paul, Luther really means all of the text of scripture. Paul's just being used to represent the whole. Um, if any text of scripture is not applicable, even, not just true, but even applicable, uh, then the authority of scripture itself falls. And Luther says that's an incredibly blasphemous thing to say. Um, I'm not saying that. Luther's saying that, but let's let's not cite Luther as an anti-inerrancy infallibility figure, um, because that's not actually true. Yeah, and let us know if you want to do a maybe us to do a longer sort of constructive episode thinking about scripture. Uh, part of the reason it's hard to bring figures like Martin Luther, John Calvin into inerrancy debates is because inerrancy itself was a very modern conception that relies on some thoughts about what knowledge is or what truth is that just were not what a medieval person would have thought about. So I I, I see Gerhard making a face here. It'll be a, a fun discussion, but I think... Yeah, tell us if you want the discussion. It'll be fun to talk. Yeah, which we can, we can talk more on. Uh, I think inerrancy is hard because it makes, like I said, makes some assumption about what knowledge is that Luther wouldn't have had. Um, or maybe just about what scriptures in general that Luther wouldn't have had. But I think you're right, too, that we can't necessarily start Luther, or pin Luther as an anti-inerrancy figure, but I tend to think that's because, like, that's outside of his conception of reality at the sort of medieval era. And, like, what Luther's an anti-pope figure, and he appeals to scripture against the Roman Catholic hierarchy, there's the last thing Luther wants to do is to cut away at the foundations of scripture. Right. I mean, you can pull... So, uh, one of our friends wrote an article a, a while back where he talked about this, but he brings up this quote from Luther where he says, uh, when one often reads that a great number of people were slain, for example, 80,000, speaking of the books of Chronicles, I believe that hardly 1,000 were actually killed. Uh, that is not the same as him stating that scripture has errors within it. Uh, again, we could do a longer episode and let us know if you want to think about it. But that's just, I think, not the terms Luther thought about Scripture in. Yeah, but hit us up on Facebook and our new Twitter account, because now we have a Twitter account. I didn't know that. Well, I'm, I'm going to make it before this airs. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so hit us up, and we'll talk about it if you want us to. Tweet at us, just say hi. We'll give you a shout-out in the episode. Maybe a follow-back? I don't know. Yeah, and... Uh, we're going to be starting a Patreon eventually, so be looking towards that. Alright, what else? Well, any big themes of Luther's theology are missing. Uh, law and gospel, 
church and state as two related spheres. I think we hit theology, the cross theology of glory enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, closing thoughts on Luther, Luther's life. Uh, I have a few on the end of Luther's life. Luther got bitter in his old age. Um, Luther, it, he wanted to see Protestantism give a unified front against Catholicism but not as much as a lot of the other reformers. Uh, one of Calvin... Calvin and Melanchthon were both very, very committed to um, essentially unifying the Protestant church to protect themselves against the Roman Catholic church, um, but they were the new generation of reformers. The old generation of reformers represented mostly by Luther and Zwingli, and then some other figures as well. Um were more recalcitrant. They they were very quick to anger about uh, what we might call minor points of doctrine. Um, and this is pretty famous. The, the famous story is Luther and Zwingli on the Eucharist. Um, Zwingli basically taught that the Eucharist was just a symbol and that nothing spiritual happened in it, um, which Luther, as you know, you heard on this episode, would have sort of agreed with. But then Zwingli took that a little further and then said, so logically we can't call this the body of Christ. We can only call it bread, which represents the body of Christ. And Luther said, no, Jesus says, this is the body of Christ. And Luther said, that's just not how words work. I know he said it, but what he meant is this is a symbol. And then Luther, in this really famous story, takes out a knife and he cars, uh, hic est corpus meum, this is my body, on the table, and for the rest of the discussion, uh, Zwingli says, no, 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 Luther, you're just not understanding, like, human words are not, they do not Jesus work like says, that. Jesus says, I am the vine, but that doesn't mean he has leaves. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. And then Luther just, uh, takes his knife and he just jams it on the table and says, this is my body. Um, and so that, as weird as it sounds, that is actually what prevented the Reformed traditions and the Lutheran traditions of Protestants from presenting a unified front, uh, and maybe is what eventually spurred them into splitting. And even this is this is actually true. Even prevented a like political treaty between the Swiss uh, confederations and the Protestant princes, um, the Swiss being reformed and the princes being um, Lutheran. Lutheran, yeah. So, like, Luther, Luther's recalcitrance, his uh, unwillingness to disagree amicably about what today seems like a minor issues to us, uh, actually had really big implications for the politics and religion of his day. Um, and he just turned into an angry, bitter old man, and everyone recognized it. Yeah, he's got writings towards the very end of his life that this really shows through. Uh, you can really see in Luther, I think it's sort of a tragedy, these expectations he had that didn't come through, and he didn't know how to deal with them. Like, he expected, once Protestant theology was explained to all of the uh, the Jews in Germany, that they would sort of immediately convert. The only thing keeping Jews from accepting Christ as the Messiah was these sort of Romanish deceptions about what the faith is, uh, and 
very famously very badly reacts to um, his rejection by sort of prominent Jewish leaders in Germany. Uh, and that's going to have a, a legacy down the road, sort of along with his church-state uh, theory that uh, really is going to negatively impact events 400 years after his life. Uh, so it's a it's the tragedy of a great figure whose importance, uh, and I think sort of greatness we can't deny. You know, Gerhard and I are both Protestants. We owe much to Luther. Uh, but really towards the end of his life, he, he struggled a lot with feeling like things that were supposed to happen weren't happening. What was the name of that book? On the Thieving Lies? Uh, on the Jews and Their Lies is, the, is the famous one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's minor evidence that he might have changed his mind in the last months of his life, but uh, I, really? don't, I don't find it particularly compelling. So there's a... Is it like Secret Thomas Told Me? No, it's a hymn that he wrote that the precise timing of is debated. Uh, and specifically whether it comes down this particular hymn was written before or after uh, on the Jews and their lies uh, but the hymn has a line in it that uh, well I can't remember it in its entirety says something along the lines of uh, nobody but we ourselves crucified Christ um, I I think even if that comes after Jews and their lies it's, it's a little bit of a weak uh, claim to make that that's a large Luther changing his mind yeah, because that would make sense in the context of Luther's whole theology of, like, trying to escalate the badness of humanity as much as possible right. in order to show God's grace. Right. I think the the hope there is that that's his peeling back the idea that, you know, the, the Augustine's witness people idea that the Jews rejected Jesus and look at the kind of suffering they deserve, what he kind of argues in Jews and their lies... Uh, I, I don't think that would necessarily mean... Like, that line would mean that Luther changed his mind on that. Anything else? Uh, I think we said it in the first episode, but I think always important to say with Luther, we consider Luther the beginning of the Reformation. You know, it's a little bit of an arbitrary start point, but an important one, but Luther didn't want to start a new branch of the church is something that can't be said enough. Uh, for a lot of his life, Luther expected that the church's essentially the protestant vision would win over the church as a whole um he he didn't envision or hope that we would have something today like the catholic church and the protestant church uh i think he would rather that than the protestant revolution just sort of die and be subsumed into catholicism but uh this vision of luther is the firebrand that nails a i'm leaving the catholic church you know letter to the door of the church uh, isn't really accurate he wanted true reform of the church, not necessarily a split from it. And I think that was part of what was so disenfranchising to him that the second generation of Reformation leaders like Melanchthon and Calvin saw was that reconciliation is not possible. Yeah, it's with Calvin and Melanchthon that we really get a split and like the formation of a new identity. Um, and it's also with figures like Calvin that we get like a moral separation from the church happening where like if you go to the Catholic Mass, you're committing idolatry. Like, Luther's strong, but he's not envisioning, like, let's damn the whole structure. And even if he would have said that, it probably would have been more in the con like, more with the idea of, so let's reform the practice and say within the structures. Get rid of the Pope, sure, but that's an accretion. Yeah. And to maybe just finally put some historical context around this of how important these ideas are, 
Luther is not the one that originates these ideas, but he brings them out, uh, and he he's sort of the the spark that lights a powder keg. Um, the second generation of people after Luther are going to continue to work with these ideas, but see Protestants and Catholics as two distinct entities. Um, that's going to you know move over to England, and eventually, a couple hundred years after Luther, it's going to move over to the New World, to America, this idea of we now have these two dueling church entities, the sort of false Roman church and the true Protestant church. Um, and that debate, even I think as a historian named Thomas Kidd has argued, maybe more so than classic ideas like taxation without representation is what's going to launch the American uh, Revolution, the you know War of Independence in America. In very, I think, real terms, you can trace the cause of events back to Luther. Um, the Protestant Reformation is different ideas of what Christianity is. Um, I mean, are going to be responsible for the country that we live in today. Um, the the effects on the world are real. Like I've hinted at a few times, there are strong links between points of Luther's doctrine and points of Nazism in the 20th century. There are equally strong, if not, I would argue, stronger points of connection between Luther's thought and the Nazi resistors in Germany. Uh, these ideas are going to play out in uh, history in real, concrete, tangible ways. So, if you have any questions for us, any thoughts for us, if you want to suggest a topic, we're always happy to hear about it, and we'll do our best to cover it. Uh, hit us up on Facebook, uh, hit us up on Twitter, I guess we don't find have... us in the street somewhere. Yeah, if you're here in Waco. See you around. Yeah, thanks for listening. Yep. Bye.